Has God ever helped you understand something significant, something amazing, and your response is to rush right into application? Have you ever done that? Uh, think putting, putting new, even really good and godly ideas into action without really meditating on them first. Or think about rushing into application without failing to thank God for helping you understand. Sometimes, at our very worst, a person might want to do this because they want to skip over applying truth to themselves and they, go on to, they want to go fix that other guy. Maybe that's you. But sometimes, at our best... We do mean well, and we just want to hurry up and change the world because it seems so messed up. (laughs) Now, it's not automatically sinful to want to get practical right away. But when you hurry through the deep truths that God reveals to you and you rush into action, you can miss something important. You can miss God. You can forget about his grace, which is ironically what allowed you to understand anything in the first place. It's a confession time. When I was preparing for this very sermon I'm about to give you, I rushed into application. (laughs) And it showed when I practiced it for the preaching team this past Wednesday. And here's the funny part. This is a passage about a guy who does not want to rush into application. So what was I rushing to apply? Well, I was rushing to apply the one word we've been learning about as we're two chapters through the book of Ephesians. That word is unity. It's a huge idea, and if you didn't notice, the world really wants it. But, many rush to apply it without acknowledging God, or even worse, they don't even agree on what the word unity means. They just want to apply it. So Paul, the author of Ephesians, has really taken his time to define it. And perhaps you've noticed. We've gone on for two chapters and we keep talking about unity. In chapter 1, Paul showed us the source of unity. The source of unity is God who is unified in his nature and he desires to unify all things through his son Jesus. Then in chapter 2, Paul showed us how that unity is accomplished. Jesus Christ died on the cross and was raised to life for all people. So Jew and Gentile, anybody can be united in him. And anybody can be united to one another in him. That's a pretty big revelation. And in such a diverse place like Ephesus, it would be easy to want to skip ahead to the application part. But Paul doesn't. He lingers again. And uh, just as Paul doesn't want to skip ahead to application, I rewrote that sermon because I don't want to do that either. Instead, today, we're going to see Paul pause and take a deep look backwards at the grace of God, 
which set in motion the mystery of the gospel, which has finally been revealed to the church and is the source of her unity. And then Paul's going to take a deep look forward, which is a time we're in now, where that same grace will cause this gospel to shake heaven and earth through the unified church. In short, it is by the grace of God that the gospel has been revealed to us and is being carried to the nations. And by relying on God's grace, we will do it as a unified church. In other words, we will apply unity correctly. So let me start by reading verses 1 through 6. Paul writes this. And don't be confused by this first sentence. I'll explain it. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive this Perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So the first thing we learn is that grace has revealed the gospel's mystery to us. Paul begins with this long sentence. He starts in verse 1 and he says, For this reason, which begs us to not forget the context of what he's just said. So I'll just briefly add on the last verse we covered last week. In chapter 2, verse 22, he said, In him, that's Jesus, you, church, are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so Paul has just talked about the people being built up in unity, and it sounds like application time in chapter 3, verse 1, and he begins, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, but then he stops. He stops himself mid-sentence, and he kind of seems to switch gears. He says, assuming you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that has been given to me for you, made known to me by revelation. What's going on here, Paul? I thought you were going to talk about us, and now you're talking about you. (laughs) That's what it seems like. Paul pauses, and he does so after reminding them of his imprisonment. And he just starts gushing about God's grace and what it's done for him. Why? Well, I think Paul just wants to pause here. And he wants them to make sure of the mission he's really on. Paul, even in prison, is what's called a steward, or you might think of it as the word caretaker, of God's grace. So he's just stopping and saying, just so we're clear, I'm a steward of God's grace. I'm, I'm carrying it as a gift from God to you. And this grace in verse 2 is what revealed to Paul and now the church the gospel, which he is now sharing with them. He really wants them to know how important grace is in this process. 
So as he continues, after this sentence in verse 5, we see this mystery is special because it's taken a very long time to reveal itself. This mystery through the history of the world was not revealed to people like Abraham or, or Moses, but given to humble little disciples of Jesus like Peter and John and Paul. Verse 5, God through his Holy Spirit has unlocked the mystery of the biggest gift ever. And he did it to a man in prison who is now consumed with sharing it with the world. And verse 6 revels in that mystery, or rather the revealed mystery once more. These Gentiles, this church in Ephesus, they're fellow heirs. Anyone can not only be saved by Jesus, but anybody can be in the family. That's what being an heir means. You're not an heir because of your resume or any good work you've done. You're an heir because of who your father is. And God the Father, Paul writes to non-Jews, can be your father because of Jesus. It's all grace. God has done all of this. So here's the point. This grace that Paul carries is really special. It's not some raving guy in prison going on about some strange new teaching. It's the fulfillment of what God has been doing all throughout history. And just so as this gospel is not some crazy new teaching, that means Paul is not some crazy new teacher. He's not a replacement for the disciples of Jesus. He's saying the same thing Peter said. He's saying the same thing John said. And the same thing Jesus said. And the same thing God the Father said. The goal is the unification of all things. And Jesus is the way. And God's grace is how all that gets revealed to little people. Little finite people can actually get that. And it makes Gentiles fellow heirs. They're equal to the Jews. What does this mean? Well, it really changed. It just refines the way we view unity. Because just as Paul isn't a replacement for the apostles, this means that the Gentiles aren't replacements for the Jews. And I think Paul takes such time here because this new teaching of Gentile inclusion, though it is eternal, it's new to the church. The Gentiles could could easily think, well, we're the new chosen people, right? No, they're being brought in. And the Jews could have thought they were being replaced. They're not. The family's just getting bigger. All the more reason, God's grace is the point. It's central to all of this. It's not about them. It's not about people and what they're bringing to the table. Imagine trying to rush to apply unity without really getting this deep down into your heart. What's even more, I think, is the grace that has been given to the messenger or the steward of this gospel. 
Again, Paul's writing this from prison. His central focus could be his hard work and how much he suffered and how much he wants the church to get him out. But he doesn't talk about that. Because I think grace has affected him too. Paul writes this from prison. Do you know how many, do you know how many Christians Paul put in prison in a former life? Some of these people in Ephesus, I think statistically speaking, would have friends or family who are in prison or dead because of Paul. But God illuminated Paul's mind. He changed him. The grace of God sunk in. So now Paul is a steward of that and he suffers to reveal it to people. He suffers to do it like Peter suffered and like John suffered and Jesus suffered because Paul knows the weight of grace. Quite simply, he has lived out the grace that he now carries. And so he carries it very carefully. The church must be grounded in God's grace or unity in Jesus will not happen. And what goes out from the church will not be unity in God. It'll be just some cheap imitation. How do we apply this? We have to remember what Paul knows here. For the Christian, recall the grace behind your gospel revelation. So many testimonies... If you've ever asked somebody to share their testimony, you ever notice how many of them are about my family, my church, the things that I did, the ministries I work for, the dreams that I have. Again, they're not bad things. But do you ever notice how when you do that, grace just kind of fades into the background over time? Friend, if you do that, as your life gets busier and busier, and it will, one day you will find that your testimony has nothing to do with God. And it will become a testimony about you. And if that's you, I would encourage you, please walk through your own testimony. Rewrite the thing if you have to. Consider all that God did to bring you to understand his grace. Think perhaps less about that one sermon that changed your life and think about the hundreds that chipped away at you. Consider less about how you responded and consider more the people who perhaps suffering as Paul did brought you this gospel and held it out to you again and again until it stuck. God sent those people by grace. You had very little to do with your own testimony. Paul's story is like this. He was not serving the Lord. He thought he was. And so just as the mystery of this gospel made him a steward of grace, 
He now takes a look forward. Now that he's corrected his vision. And he implores the church to correct their vision. He looks forward now, confident that this same grace that got him here, it's going to continue outward through him and through a unified church. How far will it go though and what will it look like? Let me read verses 7 through 13. Paul continues, Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gifts of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone, which is the plan of mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So, I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. So the second thing we're going to learn is that this grace will shake heaven and earth. It doesn't just affect us and our little church. It will go out. Let's talk about earth first, because we're here. First in verse 7, Paul again frames everything around God's grace in power. Paul has been made a minister. And in verse 8, this suggests what seems like a strange contrast. Paul says, I am the least of all apostles, but I've been given by grace the job to reach the Gentiles. Gentiles is shorthand for everybody who's not Jewish. That is a big job. That is a new job. Probably not a lot of cross-cultural training on how to share the gospel with a non-Jew is on people's minds. And Paul, who is the least, has been given the biggest job by God's grace. What does that mean? I think... Paul knows that his smallness is not a problem. In fact, it's the point. Because it makes God's grace all the bigger. He realizes how big the job is for him. And so the dependence on God to do it through him is very, very present. And so, in verse 9, he wants it to go out to everybody. It's like Paul is so obsessed with the grace of God that he wants to send this gospel out and he wants to look under every rock and he wants everybody to understand this mystery. What's the ultimate purpose? Well, it's not simply to reach the earth. We see in verse 10 that through this ministry that God has graciously given Paul... He has been sent to equip the church so that the wisdom of God, and here's a very strange phrase, 
is made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. What does that mean? Well, I don't think it means, I think it means in a manner of speaking, we are leaving earth. (laughs) At least we're leaving the part that we're familiar with. Friends, the heavenly places is another name for the spiritual realm. Dark spiritual forces that are against God, that roam the earth, corrupting the minds of people. You know, Jesus did that, didn't he? (laughs) And Paul is saying here that the grace of the, by grace, the church will too. And we don't talk much about the spiritual realm in America, do we? I do think that is a problem. (laughs) And I think maybe in unity we could talk about it a bit more. (laughs) But the church, a bunch of people who are united by one idea, the gospel, are going to stand against that? Yeah. The great reformer, Martin Luther, even wrote about this in the hymn, A mighty fortress is our God. Where he wrote this. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we will endure for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Historians know that little word means Jesus. The grace of God incarnate. This gospel, this good news of Jesus' death and resurrection are going to cause Paul and the church to shake the forces of darkness themselves. The world really will change. All the corners of the earth that sin has has touched and that sinners hide in, light is going to start to get into those places through Paul and through the church. All by God's grace. We get to play that role. And grace still isn't done yet. Here's perhaps the best part. If you look at verse 11 and 12. All of this grace is wrapped up in Jesus. And look at these words in verse 12. He is our boldness and our confident access by our faith in him. In other words, this same grace will not only send us out, it will help us and give us confidence when the world just seems dark. When we fail, When it seems like the light is not winning, we turn to grace. We don't turn to our own innate sense of unity. We turn to God. He is our boldness and our confident access. We have the power of God in Jesus Christ. So friends, that means when it seems dark, and it will, 
When people only seem to wage war against one another, and they do, and when unity seems like a pipe dream, and sometimes it does, and perhaps even when the gospel seems untrue, grace shouts, it is true. And that's what unifies us. And that's what sends us out together. Jesus' death and resurrection mean that the grace of God is from eternity past revealed to us and extends into the future. So church, stake your unity on that. If you do that, you will actually be able to stand up to sin. And nothing will stop you from your mission. And part of the reason that's true is we're here because of what the church has done. All the more reason, I I say once again, Paul writes this from prison. He closes in verse 13 and says the church should not lose heart because of his suffering because their steward of grace, Paul, is in prison. Even though the guy sending this mission is in prison, they should not lose hope. Because I don't know about you, but if all the elders here went to prison, I think some of y'all would be struggling right now. But instead, Paul has been renewed by grace. The same grace that unifies him with God and sends him out gives him hope in the midst of suffering to see it correctly. He understands that suffering to bring the gospel to people isn't shameful and it isn't wrong. In fact, it is there that he resembles Christ who brought grace to us through suffering. That's why Paul closes this wonderful passage with the word glory. The grace of God has enabled his people to see through God's eyes. And they will see it if God allows by his grace. So even as we go out, if that's hard, or if you encounter people and you share the gospel with them, And they don't think they need it. And it gets so bad that they throw you in prison. You can take heart because that's how grace came to you. People suffering. Through Christ's suffering and the disciples' suffering. And Paul's suffering. And countless Christians through the generations. Even the people who kept holding out the gospel to you until you got it. They suffered so that you would know. And it was glorious. God's grace does all this. That the world can be unified. How does this apply? Well, if you're not a Christian... Or if you're not sure if you are, you can be sure. But only by God's grace. He has to open your eyes to it. 
Because honestly, most people I meet that are not Christian, they say this wonderful sentence. I need more proof. I need more information. Fair enough. I mean, proof is nice. Information is good. But this passage says that you have a bigger need. Look, I'm not saying that you shouldn't read the countless testimonies and historical documents that verify the death and resurrection of Jesus. Because you should do that. Go read them. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't read the Bible and all the stories in it over time that gradually unroll the mysteries of the gospel that Jesus even confirms is true on the road to Emmaus. Because you should do that. And I'm not saying you shouldn't talk to Christians here and hear and listen to their testimonies because you should do that too. But I am saying that the only way you're really changing is if God changes you. Because you don't just lack information. You have a heart problem. Your heart is naturally against God. And he has to shift that. So, if you're not a Christian or if you're not sure... I'm glad you're here. And here's the next move you need to make according to this passage. Ask God to reveal himself to you and then start reading your Bible. And really get to know the people here. Read it with them. We want to hold the gospel out to you again and again. Even if it takes a while, because it took some of us a really long time. In fact, a much longer time than we like to admit. And it might work. You might change. But you might hate it so bad that you want to make us suffer for it. And you know what? That's not going to stop us. We really want you to know that much. One final application, and it is for the Christian. Just as you consider the grace that helped you understand the gospel, consider the grace needed to really send it outward, specifically through suffering. Because for some of you guys, in fact, for a lot of you, going to jail does not seem fun. Getting yelled at by your relatives on Thanksgiving dinner does not sound fun. Getting a door slammed in your face does not sound fun. Being known as the weird Christian on campus does not sound fun. You know why? Because by earthly understanding, it isn't. It's awful. But it is possible. You need God's grace to stomach that. God can change your mind. So here's the move you need to take. I want you to ask God to help you love lost people 
more than you love not being hurt. Some of us just don't like to suffer. And that's the main reason we're not doing anything when we leave here. We just don't like suffering. But by the grace of God, we can love them so much that that is what consumes us, even if we're writing from prison. Because being persecuted or sent to jail or even killed is not actually strange or terrible in the eyes of God. It's your glory. Because that's how Jesus got the gospel to us. He died. And I'm confident that if God can go so far as to help you understand the gospel, which many of you do, he can then help you know the grace that comes to and through suffering ministers like Jesus, like Paul, maybe like you. Friends, all of this is how we as a church will begin to properly apply and pursue the application of unity. It begins and it ends with God and his grace through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for grace. Lord, it's, it's right in our faces all throughout the Bible. And Lord, even as I read this passage the first dozen times, I missed it. I need your grace, Lord, to help me to preach this. And I, Lord, we need your grace for us to not only understand it, but to go out in unity, not just in the unity of our common interests or the things we like to do or being good neighbors or, or loving on people or just being a welcoming church, but Lord, going out in your grace and sharing the gospel with people that they could be united to you and united with us and that we could go and bring unity to a world that desperately needs it but can't define it because they do not love you. Lord, help them to love you through us. Amen.